Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Projal, so excited to have you on the show. Hey, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been a blast having that dinner conversation with you. And I just couldn't wait to just have you on the show and just share some parts of it, but also go deeper into some of the things that you hinted to me. I think our curiosity will lead us to some interesting places. I'm excited to share. Yeah, so you've been an amazing founder as well as an executive at Uber and Stanford MBA. I'd love to hear, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Yeah, so um, you know, today I'm CEO and co-founder of a VC-backed startup called OnLoop. We're still pre-launch. We're focused on helping teams reinvent how they develop in a new hybrid world. But I've spent now most of my career uh, post-business school uh, in and around tech. And so I spent a few years at Uber, as you mentioned, and see myself staying in tech for the rest of my life as, as a founder and a little bit of angel investing here and there. But um, I really enjoy operating and we'll, we'll see where this journey goes. I think tech operator is probably the best way to define it. Yeah, it's selling yourself a little short on this one. Obviously, we've got to go back to the beginning. We talked a little bit about this and we shared about kind of like a big part of your formative experience was really your university days. Could you share with us about why? Sure. I grew up in India and my accent's a little bit messy now with, with all the movement around the world. Spent my childhood in India and, and realized growing up that the Indian education system, despite its rigor, didn't actually lead to a very all-rounded experience. And so as I saw my classmates think about going abroad for college, that definitely came up as something that I wanted to consider. My family didn't actually have the means or the excitement about me moving to the US or the UK, which was a top destination for most Indian high school students going to college. And, and so I sort of discovered Singapore as an option on my own. And, and as I researched into it, it felt like a win-win in many cases. Uh, my, my parents were happy about the fact that it was much closer to home and drug-free and, and a much more sort of regimented country than, than the US or the UK and, and how college was portrayed in those countries. And I was also lucky enough to get a full scholarship to come out to SMU, which is where I eventually went. And so from that perspective, in hindsight, although it wasn't necessarily the most common destination for a lot of Indian high school students, I really benefited from it. And my time in Singapore, I definitely consider extremely formative and, and set me up for success for the rest of my life in a very big way. And I think that the biggest piece was just, just getting used to figuring everything out on your own. So, you know, at 17, I came out here and my, my dad dropped me off for a couple of weeks and left. And you were sort of on your own and you and everything sort of picks up from there. And, and as you sort of go about living day-to-day life entirely self-directed. I think it teaches you a lot of things that is different if you're under a system or under a life that is more controlled by others. So, uh, you know, we can dig into specific pieces if you want to go into it. But but I think this notion of starting my life as a professional on my own in a foreign country at 17 uh, was something that I've definitely benefited from as I've thought about the rest of my career. Yeah, that's such a 
big transition being uh, someone new to obviously the university system in, in terms of education, but also new to the geography. What was that transition like from South Asia to Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, the, the best way I can describe it, when I, so when I moved to Singapore, my, my first hostel room was a $300 per month room. It had, it had a bunk bed, so there were two of us in a room. And the size of that room was smaller than the size of my bathroom in India. I grew up in Calcutta, which is, which is, a, which is a large city in India. But, but obviously, when you come to a place like Singapore, space is much more of a premium. And so uh, walking into that, that first room was definitely a bit of a, bit of a change. And it's a, it's a moment. As you settle into life, you realize that you don't actually need all that much, right? And we didn't really actually spend that much time uh, in our rooms either. And so I think, and one of the things that I remember distinctly feeling that you don't actually need that much or, or that much space or that much resource to live a life that is full and meaningful and get stuff done. And so I, I think that was definitely something I deeply remember. I think the second, for those who've been to India and Calcutta in specific, I mean, there's chaos rampant everywhere. And then you then you move to a place like Singapore where you don't see a speck of dirt anywhere. And and, and frankly, that was that was eye-opening. And and in many ways, it was it was it was special to feel that this is a place I now live in. My I think part of what motivated this also. My dad grew up in Switzerland, and I moved to India when he was fifteen. And he often complained about India and how backwards it was growing up. And so I think this notion of there is a better world out there that is just run better it was something that came up a lot in childhood, and it was eye opening to see a city like Singapore that was just so well run and and everything worked beautifully. So I would say the change in the amount of space I had and just the, just the overall level of functionality of a city and how different Calcutta and Singapore was were the first two things that really stood out. Wow. And there you are, and you're doing well in school, and you go out and you leave, and then you start your first set of jobs pretty much as a consultant. So what was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I will say that one of the one of the things about Singapore as a college experience is that it's less international versus the the, the sort of working environment is. So, so, you know, college for me was spending a lot of time with other sort of Indian international school children because we were all in the same hostels together and we spent a lot of our time together. Most most of my Singaporean friends went back home, right? So so as a college experience, it was it was less globalized and less international than I would have liked. But but when I joined Accenture's strategy practice in Singapore, we grew that practice very quickly over the course of two years. And we had 32 folks from 14 nationalities. And it really felt like a melting pot of people from everywhere and all walks of life. And, and if I think about what really made me fall in love with Singapore as a country and, and a place I call home today is just just the sheer diversity of folks in a professional setting. And also being a consultant meant sort of spending time in Jakarta, in Manila, in KL, in Delhi and Bombay, and then working with the largest companies in the region and really thinking about how to bring the region forward. And I think I'm very, very glad that I started my career in strategy consulting in Southeast Asia, because I think it gave me a foundation of both global colleagues, many of which I'm still very much in touch with, as well as exposure to the region 
through a lens that was able to give a bird's eye view very, very quickly. And over the course of consulting, I spent a year in the Philippines, I spent a year in Malaysia, I spent I spent a few months in India. And so really was able to get to know the region a lot better and really look back fondly on my on my strategy consulting days in Southeast Asia. So we're going to continue the rest of this chronology. But one thing that often happens is that a lot of undergrads are thinking to themselves, should I just go straight to being a founder like ProGile now is? Oh, should I become a consultant at X company, right? Accenture, Bain, BCG, Deloitte. So there's all, you know, all like some consumer package good company. So just quick aside, what was your thinking about why you decided to work at Accenture? And on retrospect, I mean, it sounds like you're very positive about it. But what do you think about that hunger for lots of undergrads these days to just skip all this fluff, this management strategy? It's a very good question, and and, and let me let me peel the onion uh, in a few ways. I think I think firstly for me, and actually and we can talk about this later, but my life trajectory shifted quite a bit at 25 when I realized that I was brought up to be more risk averse than. I was intrinsically, and and that drove a change. But in many ways, coming out of college was about getting a good job. And that's what I was told that you should do after college. I had done an internship at Merrill Lynch Technology in my junior year, and that was the other sort of option that was on the table. And between the two, Accenture Strategy Consulting made more sense. So, and obviously this is back back in 2008, and the notion of being a founder in, in Southeast Asia out of college was, was very much not something that, that, that really existed. So I think, I think from that perspective, very much South Asian upbringing of do well in school, get good grades, get a good job, get promoted every couple of years and move forward. Now, I think I got especially lucky falling into a practice at Accenture that was in a period of hyper growth that led me to play much more of a leadership position from a cultural standpoint and development standpoint for that practice right from the time that I was a first-year analyst. And, and that that has in many ways contributed to have thought about my career too. But to go back to your specific question about what do I think about being a founder right after college, I will say that being a founder period is not something people should take lightly as a decision. And I don't necessarily think that a lot of folks coming out of college necessarily have the right insight and the right ability to really build a company from scratch. Ideas come to people all the time, and that can come when you're 18 or you're or 80. There's, there's no difference there. But I think if you have a great idea, very quickly, being a founder goes from building something to building a company. And I think company building is, is a specific skill set that not a lot of folks have coming out of college. In fact, We've seen this with a lot of global founders who founded companies very young that along the way they brought in people like Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, as an example, to go build that company. And so I don't think there's a hard and fast rule around it. For me, I didn't think I had the safety net or the idea or the cultural inclination to go start a company right after college. I would say that in most cases, I wouldn't recommend people to start a company right after college. But life's not black and white. And it's very circumstantial to what what drives people to have decisions in various points in life. And there are many examples of successful companies that have been started by founders um, in their early 20s. But it was an interesting steer to the to the story. Yeah. So... Very much, you're on a pro job after undergrad story. So there you are, and you make the decision to do those four years of Accenture. 
And then you decided to do an MBA at Stanford. So what was driving that decision? Because some people, and myself included, knew that it was time for a change. And some people were using it to explore themselves. Some people knew where they wanted to go. Some people knew they wanted to do a startup, so they wanted to do it through an MBA. So what was that rationale for you from your perspective? Yeah, no, again, again, here is a very distinct memory and a very distinct moment. As many consultants do, they, they do either Monday, Thursdays or Monday, Fridays. The more posher consulting firms do Monday, Thursdays, but you come back home on Thursdays at Accenture, we used to do Monday, Fridays. So we used to, we used to come back home on, on Fridays. I remember coming back from Manila one Friday night and just being exhausted and realizing that I spent a lot of time at work, but it wasn't clear to me really who and how and what impact I really had. And I think it had got to a point where I felt like I had learned a lot and, and had a set of experiences that were fantastic and could have gone down that path. But this desire to go deeper in terms of my impact was very palpable. And at that point, I had also spent the entirety of my life in Asia. I remember being in college and going back to India to talk to prospective students and talking about how Singapore is a great destination for undergrad. I'll eventually go to the US for my MBA. And I will say that when I was younger, it was very much about an MBA. I think, I think as I spent a few years in strategy consulting and did undergrad business too, it stopped being about an MBA, but more about were there schools that would take who I was and really amplified to take that forward. And just based on my life experiences to that point, it felt like Harvard and Stanford would do schools that would really help me find out things about myself and give me access to a set of knowledge and people that would be truly differentiated. And growing up in Asia, Harvard was the absolute dream. So I actually applied to HBS first and, and got rejected, which would then eventually let me to apply to Stanford and, and surprisingly getting in. I still think it's a mission mistake, but I think there was this notion of wanting to get closer to driving impact and really understanding what an operator feels like is, is what drove that decision to think about getting out of consulting. If I hadn't got into Harvard Stanford, I, I think I would have found other ways to get more involved in all stage companies in Southeast Asia and to figure that out. And I always tell people that there is no one formula for success. And careers are very much meandering roads where you have a sample size of one and at every point you have to take the data that you have in terms of what's the right decision in front of you and, and just take it. And in most cases, you will end up okay. And for me, I was just lucky enough to get into Stanford and that ended up being the next move after consulting in Southeast Asia. Yeah, you made the right choice. I mean, Stanford is great, more selective than HBS, for those who don't know. So yeah, you went to the better school, I guess. What did you learn at Stanford? Because it's a brand. When people think of the word Stanford, they're thinking like California, surfers, internet, Silicon Valley, computers, founders conquering the world. So what was it like going to the GSB program and what did you take away when you were there? Yeah, I'll talk about, I'll talk about how the experience transformed me. But, but just to give people a sense, I had actually never been west of Minnesota ever in my life. So I'd never been to the campus. I never spent time in California. So I actually knew very little about what being there and living there would be like. And actually... I decided to drive cross-country with a couple of my prospective business school classmates uh, right before school. And so we drove from New York to Palo Alto through the South, which was actually one of my, still continue all the best experiences 
I've ever had. And frankly, my first six months were tough. It felt like a lot of culture shock. I had no idea what tailgating was. In the rest of the world, football gets played with feet, not with hands. And college football is, is a big part of culture in, in, any, in any university. And I also was very determined that going to a U.S. business school or going to Stanford meant that I wanted to come out with a set of experiences and friends that were truly global and not really settle into comfort zone or hang out with the kids from Asia or other management consultants. And so, so I decided I would put myself into the deep end, and that meant immersing myself in experiences and getting to know people that I didn't have a lot in common with. And that meant that for the first few months, I didn't necessarily have a lot of super close friendships. I'd also not done a lot of the pre-MBA trips around uh, Columbia and Yacht Week and other things that people do. And then the other thing about Stanford is that unlike HBS and, and a few of the other top schools, there isn't a very rigorous curriculum in the first year. At HBS, for instance, and Jeremy, you know more than I do, but you go through a very rigorous experience with section with 90 of your classmates for the full first year. Section of the JSB is only for the first semester. And you have a lot more free time really to think about how you how you shape your life. And frankly, I didn't really go to business school being like, this is exactly what I want out of it. And so the first six months was was a lot of like waiting the waters and, and figuring out what I wanted and how I spend my time. And then a couple of sort of school trips, one to Ecuador that I clearly remember that was truly transformational in forming a set of relationships and having sort of conversations with classmates that, that sort of went deeper and then everything sort of flowed from there. But if I think about my Stanford experience, I can point to three or four things that I believe were truly transformational. I think the first is just the kind of relationships you form with people who are all high achieving but in very, very different ways. And I, and I think Reed Hastings talks about talent density in his, in his book, No Rules Rules. And I think a lot of the top business schools just have a talent density of people that is deeply humbling, but also deeply enriching in many ways. And those, and those relationships are obviously compressed intensely into a two-year period, but then continue through the rest of your life. And as I think about Onloop today, there's, there's hallmarks of GSB all over it in terms of co-founders and and the cap table and all the customers, et cetera. So that's one. The second, and this is very specific to Stanford, and I know we chatted about this on WhatsApp the other week, is that it's a school that's really focused on developing you as a leader. And one of the hallmark questions of the school is, why should someone follow you? If you become a leader, I think that's a very, very important question to ask. And the school's other sort of philosophy is that People following you as a leader is also dependent on them feeling a connection with you and building a vulnerable connection with you. And a lot of time is spent on helping each individual in the program really figure out who they are, really figure out what their core insecurities are, really figure out why they exist and what needs to happen to get past that for each individual to transform into an amazing leader. And so it's much more of a leadership school than a business school. And leadership is an important skill in every aspect of life, be it personally or professionally. And I think that would be the second thing. I think the most important one, and we can we can dig into it um, if if helpful. And then the third is yes, I think I think the brand and I think the selectiveness of the program, rightly or wrongly, does carry weight. And coming out of it, 
I've definitely felt more doors open for me because I have a GSB MBA, uh, whereas I might have been the exact same person, but without that credential, I think people might have opened fewer doors. And so from that perspective, there is definitely an halo effect and something that I have benefited from. And both of my post-business school opportunities have come through other GSB alumni. Again, much like Singapore as an institution that I'm extremely grateful for, for starting off my life at 17, I think Stanford and GSB is another institution that I'm also very grateful for propelling me at 25. Amazing. So out of the three things between deeper relationships with talent density, developing as a leader, and obviously brand helping open doors. Could you share a bit more about why talent density is so key to the GSB experience, to the MBA experience, and implicitly you're talking about also other companies' experience as well. So let's talk about that. What's so, what's so good about talent density? Isn't a great person someone you can just reach out to anyway on your own? What's so special about putting them all in the same room or course at the same time? Yeah, I think a big hallmark of the MBA experience is people taking out two years of their life in sort of their mid to late 20s in most cases to really accelerate their own development. So when you're working day to day, you're in one of two zones. You're either in a performance zone where you're getting stuff done or you're in a development zone where you're getting, you're really getting better. Think about the MBA program as two years, 100% of the time in the development zone. That is a very large investment of time because if you, if you do the math, there's about a half a million dollar opportunity cost to that program too. What a high talent density does is in terms of your own iterations as a person, professionally and personally, those iterations just get massively accelerated. And you're able to sort of experientially live through many different experiences with a group of people to really develop not just yourself as a person, but also your worldview on things and, and what really matters. And I think that is amplified by that talent density. I think any experience where a group of people spend two years together will be enriching. But for me, I was blessed with having a group of people that I respected and looked up to and learned a lot from. And having those two years in a high-pressure cauldron was deeply impactful to my development. Yeah, I like what you said about the parallel experiences because they're all learning at the same time. So you're not just learning from your own experience, but from other people as well. So that's true at the MBA level, and you're also hinting at how it applies to the company level. Um, so why is it important? I mean, it sounds a bit rhetorical, I know, when I say it that way. But we don't normally describe companies as talent density. We, I think we normally describe companies as no assholes <laughs> and Please, boss, please hire a colleague or teammate who's not an asshole and is actually competent. But we don't necessarily flip it out of way around and say what the talent density of a company is. So why is that important at the company level, which is a bit different from the academic level? No, I think there's more and more research coming out that the best organizations are learning organizations. And that is even more so true for, for startups or, or high-growth organizations, any organization that's doing something that's different. And that means that for individuals, for teams, for organizations to think about how you, how you constantly reinvent yourself, both as a person as well as collaboratively with others, is a deep part of, I would say, the right culture in a company, as well as what keeps companies ahead. And obviously, we can debate Netflix culture, and, and, there, are, and there are many sides to it, and, and that's where the term tendency comes from. But, but I think... 
invention is difficult. Coming up with something new is difficult. And as I think about organizations, when you're trying to do something new, talent density and a culture of learning and development is deeply, deeply important. If I, if I think about my experiences post the GSP, I think my orientation became much more about how do we take a group of people and then utilize their abilities in the best cohesive way to move a company forward. And the way I thought about teams and organizations fundamentally changed as a result of that experience. I think also changed the way I thought about what work is, right? And, and I think that work for a very long time for people has been something you do to get paid to live the rest of your life. I've been lucky to never have had a job in my life that has felt that way. Uh, and, I, and I hope to keep it that way. And for me, that's, that's really about enjoying the people you work with and move forward. Now, to your point about no assholes, that goes back to the collaborative angle. Because there are organizations that are full of individual brilliant jerks who are all very capable in their own right and might have very high talent density. But if they cannot develop in a collaborative way, that will not take the full system forward. And there will be a ton of movement and a ton of noise, but not necessarily a ton of progress. I would say high talent density with the right collaborative environment drives the largest amount of progress through sort of motion and activity that is targeted in a common direction. It, it felt like a different tangent to the question, but that's where my head went when you asked me that. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is that you know, after GSB, you join Uber, which has all of what you just mentioned. I think everybody recognizes Uber as a place of really hungry people, really talented folks. And also, in, at least in the eyes of the press, contentious history in terms of culture and dynamics. So how do you think about that? How do you think Uber fits in your experience there as a strategy and planning manager, as a country GM, as a strategy and planning leader and executive. How do you feel like Uber kind of like matched against what you just shared in terms of a learning organization? I did, I did spend a couple of years in finance in a very different experience. And we don't necessarily talk about it before I sort of ended up moving back to Singapore in 2016 and joining Uber. I also won't go deep into what gets written in the press because I think we all know that Everything in the press can be taken with a pinch of salt. But I deeply enjoyed my Uber experience. A lot of people will say this, is that as a group of individuals who are really driven to take a mission forward, there have been very few companies that have been able to do that as successfully as Uber had. Travis, for all of his strengths and weaknesses, was definitely an inspirational leader that was able to really take a group of people towards a mission. And that was a mission that led to a safer, more reliable, more affordable ride for the world's population in the backdrop of archaic transportation unions and taxi unions in the world. And, and that's a mission that energized a lot of people. It attracted a lot of top talent and sort of created a cauldron where people move fast. I do a culture talk about the sort of evolution of Uber and going from where it was in 2016 to where it was in 2020. And definitely there were side effects of, of that sort of moving fast hyper-growth, high-performance culture. But it was a place where you had to be a deeply learning organization to be able to stay ahead in the midst of strong regulatory, strong competitive, strong sort of investor expectation that sort of you had to 
input into how, how you ran the business. And most of my experience at Uber was in Southeast Asia in a, in a time when there was deep competition with both Grab and Gojek. And that meant that the competitive intensity was extremely high in a sort of regulatory hodgepodge of markets. And you had to stay extremely agile, do preserve market share and grow and take the business forward. And in many ways, for me, Uber was a deep continuation of a lot of my experience at business school. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of GSBers at Uber. I was hired to Uber by, by someone from the GSB back called Mike Brown, who ran Uber in the region at the time. And I built a lot of really, really close relationships during my time at Uber that continue today in, in my leadership team, on my cap table. And, and again, very much felt like an institution where you were together in service of something that was bigger than you just as a person. And from that perspective, I think Uber was and still is a very special place. So here's where you share about Uber being someone that you enjoyed and appreciated the culture and the learning rate. And of course, I guess the, the question that happens as a result for any listener is, well, why then did Uber lose to Grab and Gojek from the perspective, right? It's like, if Uber is such a great learning organization and learning organizations are stronger competitors, then why is it that Grab and Gojek are winners? So tell us more about how to think about that from your perspective. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And again, it goes back to how how the press writes headlines and sort of what really attracts attention. But the facts are that, and again, I wasn't part of this decision. This decision was made by Uber HQ at the time of the merger with Grab. I was the GM of the Philippines and that was a very interesting day and, and, a, and a sad day for, for many of us in many ways. But the reality is that Uber was a ride-hailing company and was building a ride-hailing business followed by a food delivery business. But by nature of Southeast Asia's maturity or lack thereof from a digital e-commerce, internet commerce perspective, what Grab and Gojek were building was an extremely valuable set of digital transactions on top of which a lot of other businesses could be built, primarily a payments business um, and a fintech business. And, and that meant a very different fundraising story and also investor appetite to think about how much is the right amount to burn to acquire a customer or acquire a ride or acquire a transaction versus the sort of strategy that Uber was pursuing. And so for us in Southeast Asia, we were we were sort of consistently getting outspent by, by competition. And although we were able to, to compete and we were able to make some moves to continue to compete, I think when people looked at the businesses, they just made more sense together versus uh, individually, given the strategies of, of each business, as well as the direction that the companies were taking. And as a result, Uber made a decision in, in March of 2018 to merge its uh, business in Southeast Asia with Grab, which in hindsight has been an extremely profitable investment decision for Uber as a company. I won't go into the specifics, but a lot of it is public, where as Grab goes public, that would be a 10x investment return in terms of the investment Uber made in the region to what that stake today is worth. And at the time, we had all valiantly competed. Um, and a lot of a lot of folks actually went over to Grab and have had 
very successful careers uh, at Grab too after the time at Uber and mergers are difficult in their own ways. But I don't think it's about who won or who lost. I think businesses sort of compete and often decide that to take a different path as to what economically makes sense for, for shareholders. And, and that's a decision Uber took in the region. And I think a decision that was the right decision at the time, if I would say. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so there you are, and you know you keep going at Uber. So the acquisition goes through, and then more than landing your two feet, you know you continue building out the executive role at Uber. So what was that like continuing after this transaction? Because you see the departure of quite a few teammates of yours, and now you're lacking global and APEC issues. What was that feeling like? Yeah, it very much felt like transitioning into a bigger company, and that will eventually lead to me leaving Uber. But like, I got into a role that meant reshaping how Uber did partnerships globally. It was with the same leaders I had worked with in the region prior, so that that remained consistent. But from a scope perspective, um, change to a global scale, change to more of a partnership and BD orientation versus an operational orientation, meant that I started spending. Most of my time outside of Singapore, although I was I was based here and I was on a plane most of the time, which we relived recently as I tried to compile my last five years travel history for my Singapore citizenship application. And you know, was was a time that I really enjoyed, but it was much more about taking a big organization forward versus was sort of day-to-day operations. And I remember a moment when I was at a GSB prospective applicants event and this young lady walked up to me and said, so Projal, you talk about GSB being this transformative experience, but prior to GSB, you were at Accenture, which was a large corporate. And, and now eight years down the line, you're, you're at Uber, which is, which is a large corporate. So, so, so what's, What's really changed and what really was the transformation? And so, and I, and I think that was also in many ways a, a reminder that, you know, Uber had gone from 9,000 to 27,000 people when I was there and, and had become, gone public and become a very different company. And so my roles prior post merger were much more big company organizational direction and strategy and metrics focus. I really enjoyed that experience too, but I think it definitely moved me further away from really being a day-to-day operator. So there you are at Uber and you're looking at this from an executive level and some level you're thinking to yourself that you want to become a founder. So what was that like? Yeah, so, so Uber was also you know, a very all-encompassing place and, and during my time there, my life was pretty much entirely Uber. I knew that the next career move was going to be one that I wanted to be more thoughtful about. Uh, versus necessarily just jumping on the next thing that felt exciting. And so I left Uber in September of 2019 and gave myself six months to really figure out what was next and, and wanted to keep quite an open mind about it. To be honest, it was never about, I'm going to go be a founder. And I actually think that one of the things that I don't particularly like is people being like, I want to go be a founder. I think people should go be a founder if they find something that they deeply care about, that they want to solve, and they have a particular insight that is different, that gives them a fair shot at going and solving that problem. Because I think being an early stage founder, as you know, Jeremy, is one of the hardest jobs in the world and takes a ton of grit and ability to deal with adversity. And in my experience, unless you deeply care about 
what you're going after and, and the team, the people around you, that, that can be tough. Uh, and so what really led me to becoming a founder and then sort of going full time on my company on loop in, in Q2 of 2020, previously called Curate and then we had to rebrand, is that I just had a lot of personal pain as a leader and as a leader of, of high performing teams and sort of spread out over a lot of places where I didn't feel that the tools that I was given as a leader to develop my teams were anywhere as close to the tools were to get work done. And as we saw tools like Zoom and Slack and Asana really bring the workplace into the 21st century, unfortunately, the tools to develop teams are very much still in the 1990s and are largely systems of record and we can we can we, I can talk about this for hours but I felt there was a gap there in what would be the right experience of teams in developing themselves using the right technologies versus what was available to me and I, and I really approached being a founder with a set of problems that I wanted to go and solve versus necessarily a solution or an idea that I was crazy about and I, and I think that that used to be the way companies got built 20, 30 years ago. I think with the abundance of capital, it's much easier today to, to start a company, uh, although it's still very hard. And I think often founders sort of approach things from, here's an idea, I'm going to build it. For me, it was very much a problem I deeply cared about and a, and a theme that's been consistent in my life on how do you really unleash the full potential of every individual, as we've spoken about my time at the GSB and, and other places. And I really wanted to go tackle that and understand what that felt like. That makes a lot of sense because every company obviously wants to get work done, but at some deeper level, they know that they have to help the team become better in order for that work to be done. So, you know, short-term greedy, long-term greedy, and long-term greedy means developing your people. I guess the question is, why do you care uh, about this problem, right? Before this, you know, obviously you've been executive, you've been a strategy person. What was there that brought you to this point where I said, this is a problem that you love because being a founder sucks. <laughs> so you better love the problem. So why do you love the problem of bringing out the best in people? Yeah, I don't know if I can exactly answer the why. I think what I can answer with deep conviction, it has been the case for a very long time. And so Stanford has a flagship essay called What Matters Most to You and Why? And I wrote these essays back in 2011. And what I wrote that what matters most to me is the pursuit and success, a pursuit of success and happiness of myself and those around me. And in many ways, if I think about meaning in life for me professionally, it's really about feeling motivated that I'm working towards something bigger or something better, which is how I define the pursuit of success and happiness. When I was at Accenture, I was given people develop of the year as a first-year analyst, which is typically given to folks who are senior managers or partners. But it's this notion of, I will be more successful if I help others be successful. is something that has existed in me from a very young age. I used to learn computer science in high school by inviting my friends over and teaching them computer science. And I genuinely enjoy teaching people. I genuinely enjoy trying to help others be better. And so in, in some ways, I, I don't know if I could have predicted this, that I would have today been building a company to help individuals and teams be better. But if I think about all the things I've written about and spoken about, I think, I think people and developing people has been a very large mainstay of how I've thought about 
even business impact and taking teams forward. And so I'm just lucky that today I get to work on that problem that I deeply care about. And this is something else that I like talking about to folks is that being a founder is also a huge financial challenge. It takes a few years of taking below market salaries and burning through sort of a lot of your own savings to go build that. And I didn't necessarily think that I was in the right place in life to really go take that back. Uh, and go take that risk prior to this. And I think if I'd, if I'd felt that I could, I might have taken it all in. But this was the first time in my life that I felt that I could really sort of double down and really take that risk on working on what I really cared about while maintaining a lifestyle and, and sort of living a life that I enjoy. And you've obviously met my partner, Ollie, and I, I, I like talking about this too, that she, she has a great job at Facebook and I'm a Facebook dependent. And that in many ways also enables me to be a founder. And I think that often the fact that being a founder is a privilege does not get spoken about. And because I felt like I had that privilege, I'm now able to go focus on this problem that I deeply care about. And if I had the privilege earlier, I might have done earlier, but this is the earliest I, I got to it. And I'm still looking forward to working for another 40 years. So there's a, there's a long way ahead. So you're talking about something interesting, right? Which is the gap between reality and the image of the founder. We're talking about the salaries, the decisions you're to make. What would you say are the common myths or misconceptions about being a founder in Southeast Asia, you know, like Singapore, Indonesia, wherever it is? Yeah, I think people hear about founders once they've got to some level of success. People never don't really hear much about founders who never get to anywhere that that is meaningful. And so I, I think that there is a glorification of the job and sort of being CEO founder of a growing tech company as this thing to aspire to. But, but I think people should consider sort of their life reality very carefully before making that decision. So I think, I think if I had to say what is a myth, I think the myth that it's a, it's a fantastic career choice is definitely a myth. <laughs> and, I, and I think there are career choices that, that are much more probabilistically weighted, likely more successful than being a startup founder. In the same way that people should have a lot of money before they invest a lot in Bitcoin, I think you need some sort of a safety net before you decide to be a startup founder or else you know, things might go badly. <laughs> and so I think, I think investing in crypto is probably a good analogy of thinking about being a startup founder and you kind of need a little bit of life foundation before you make that leap. Well, who knows what the price gyrations of the crypto market will be when this podcast finally comes out. So the point, of course, is that I laugh because we're both founders and we both encourage people to take a good hard look about whether you actually love the problem because the founder is a tough job, that's one. And also, like you said, I still remember my MBA entrepreneurship professor just showing up a slide and saying, look, we did a study where we should look at the probability adjusted actual earnings of founders versus professional. And obviously, founders have that. Some of them do really, really well. And then everyone else does not so great. And then net-net, that's below of what you do at a normal post-MBA job, which was an interesting thing to watch and see. No, totally. I see, I see friends sort of getting their swimming pools ready in their mansions in Woodside and Atherton. And... You know, I, I'm definitely not living that lifestyle today. <laughs> so, 
the the sacrifice and the and the sort of ups and downs are worth it if you really care. And what I tell people is, if you deeply, deeply care about a problem and you believe that you have the ability to assemble a great team, uh, you have the ability to raise capital, you have the ability to deliver on the insights that you have. It is the most fulfilling thing in the world, and the and the last year for me professionally has been the most fulfilling professional year of my life, despite its challenges. But I cannot underscore how lucky I am and how big a privilege that is. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. So wrapping up here, could you share with us about times where you had to be brave? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I you know I, I read that question. Um, and the first memory that came up was being a few months actually into my job at Uber and realizing that a lot of companies in the region, Indonesia was the most important thing that everybody spoke about, that, that the most money went into, that was the, the P0 for, for every project that people did. But we as a company had an interesting dynamic in Indonesia where there was a three-way competition with, with Grab and Gojek, whereas in the rest of the region, it was a two-way competition with Grab. And for both Grab and Gojek, Indonesia was also the crown jewel. I actually spent time on, on preparing a proposal that, that we eventually ended up presenting to the CEO to reallocate a lot of our investment in the region away from Indonesia to other sort of countries in the region because we would just get more of a market share lift for every dollar we spent uh, in a bunch of other markets, which at that time was a fairly controversial decision internally, as well as what Uber used to call a big, bold bet, um, and definitely did not make my GM of Indonesia very happy either. But in, in hindsight, it ended up being a really good decision for us because it led to a much higher overall market share in the region had we not made that decision otherwise. And so I think bravery for me is is going against the grain uh, where there are pretty big consequences to the decision that you make. And for me, I was still relatively into the company and, and it felt like a big move, but the more time I spent looking at the numbers, it just didn't make sense. And so it required me to sort of build this case for us to make a pretty contrarian decision. So that was the first example that com- comes up. The other one that comes up more personally is, is making a decision to spend my summer of business school in Guatemala. And I found a startup called Blue Kite in a space, which was remittances and cross-border payments that I was deeply interested in. But Guatemala was also an extremely unsafe place to live in. And I actually had a situation on my second day there, which luckily ended up okay, but could have ended up very badly. You go through these experiences in life where you come out better um, and you learn from them and you and you move forward. But again, I think I think being brave or being courageous is also one where if you have the privilege to, you can. I think many people would be more brave if they had the confidence or the ability to, but often often can't. So those are the, those are the two situations that come up for me. But I think I really value this ability to be courageous uh, and be and be able to go against what might be the popular perspective, but be contrarian in a in a productive way versus be a contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. And I think the world definitely needs more people to be brave and sort of make moves that are brave and courageous that make the world better. Wow, thanks so much for sharing that. So wrapping things up here, I'd love to summarize the three big themes that I took away from this conversation. The first was, thank you so much for being real about your transition from India to Singapore. 
but also from Singapore to Southeast Asia and then to the world via the US and then beyond as well. So really thank you for just being frank about the personal and the professional dynamics about what it was to be a student and a professional, the culture shock and the learnings you had to take away as a someone who was learning the system, but also as someone who was looking to do well and excel. And I thought that was a really nice part about you building out those roots, but also building out that understanding of various cultures. The second part I also really enjoyed was actually the whole dynamic around some of the conversations we had around the insider view of the Uber versus Grab versus Gojek three-way <laughs> fight, WWE style. And I love what you said. It's like, hey, you know, um, I think there's one way we can look at it from the outside. And here's a way that we can look at it from a more financial and strategic perspective. And I really like that dynamic because I think definitely over the medium to long term, I think the economics of those things have become more apparent than the the externalities and the you know human sides that were more apparent in the short term of those transitions. And I also really loved what you shared about your bravery moment in terms of articulating the strategic push and pivot away from Indonesia, a three-way fight to more two-way fights. And I think all this is great advice because you and I both know there are so many verticals now where some equivalent fight is happening right now. Some of them is a couple of domestic champions versus market launcher slash dynamic. So it's just been interesting to see that happening. And I'm sure this conversation will be very relevant for people in terms of how they think about that process. And the third thing, of course, I really enjoyed was this deeper, frank, and some dark humor around being a founder. <laughs> so about how it's not what it's cracked out to be. And it touched upon it in different ways. How wise is it to be a student founder? What are the things you need to learn and get ready? What are true economic outcomes, but also the risks, both financially and lifestyle-wise? And I thought it was just interesting because, like you said earlier, we have the blessings and the privilege, I think that's what you said, of being where we are in terms of our education, our resources, our networks. And we still think it's hard. And, and we still think it's very hard. And so I think you being raw and real about that is just really the most I think no BS take on what it actually means to be a founder beyond all the vainglorious coverage that can happen out there. No, thank you. Thank you for that. And I can only share my sample size of one. And but if my life sample size of one can help others, I'm, I'm happy to share all that. Thank you so much, Bojal, for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs> <laughs>